One night, Joseph was praying to be forgiven of his sins and to know what he should do. An angel named Moroni appeared and told Joseph about a book that was written on gold plates. Joseph was to translate these plates into English. The next day, Joseph went to the top of the hill Cumorah. Joseph Smith went up on that hill and dug where he was told. There he found a big rock. He pried the rock up with a stick. Beneath the rock was... And deep in the ground, Joseph found shining plates of gold. What are these golden plates? Who buried them here and why? Then appeared an angel. His name was Moroni. He used the Urim and Thummim to translate some of them. Scribes helped Joseph by writing the words as he translated them from the gold plates. But don't let anybody see these plates except for you. They are only for you to see. Even if people ask you to show the plates to them, don't just copy them onto normal paper. Even though this might make them question if the plates are real or not. The book is called The Book of Mormon. It tells about people who lived in America many years ago. It also tells about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Infants on Thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 683 Truth versus Fiction Part 2, Who Wrote the Book of Mormon? Now this episode was originally episode 24. It was released September 30th, 2013. It was the first time that I met John Hamer and uh, had a conversation with John and Randy about the authorship of the Book of Mormon. And that's what we're going to be talking about. I need to say something about reification. Hey, Quad. Nice you could drop in. The word reification is going to come up in this discussion, and you use it as if most people understand what it is or even why it's important to know, but they don't. Okay, so go ahead, define reification. Reification is when someone talks about an abstract idea or concept as if it is a real concrete thing. All right, do you feel better now getting that off your chest? Not yet, I want to give an example. Fine, but could you speed it up a little? I want to get to John Hamer. Who doesn't? Did you know that when you talk about the church, you are treating an abstract idea as if it were a real concrete thing? But the church is a real concrete thing. No, it isn't. It's an idea that to some people refers to the leadership of the church. To others, it means all members. To others, it means a physical building. But when anyone talks about 
the church did this, or the church wants that. They are reifying an abstract idea, treating it like it were a real concrete thing. So, what's the big deal with doing that? The big deal with doing that is that it adds yet another layer of fiction to the onion of reality. The onion of reality? Yes. Treating something that is not concrete as if it were concrete, peeling back layer after layer of things that aren't exactly what we're calling them, and never coming to a solid center. It's a metaphor. Yeah, I know what it is. So, is that all you wanted to say? No. I want to say something about confirmation bias, scripture as a human response to divinity, the river of revelation that flows from within, and the role that imagination plays in making all of that make some kind of sense. Okay, but can you save that until after the episode? Sure. But why don't you reveal your own confirmation bias right now, so that listeners will better understand what was going on between you and Randy during this discussion? Alright. Confirmation bias. So I'm clearly leaning more towards evidence that supports Joseph Smith as the sole author, whereas Randy has a bit of confirmation bias towards the Solomon Spaulding theory. That's all you really need to know there. So let's just jump into the episode, shall we? Just as the arch crumbles, if the keystone is removed, so does all the church stand or fall with the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and I'm really excited today to kick off the first in a three-part series on the Book of Mormon authorship. Now, the quote that you just heard was from President Ezra Taft Benson, and he made that statement in October General Conference in 1986. Now, I was 14 years old at the time, a teacher in the Aaronic Priesthood, the same age Joseph Smith had been when he saw God and Jesus in the Sacred Grove. And if Joseph Smith was able to see God and angels at 14 because of his great faith, then why couldn't I? You know, that was my mindset at the time, and I, I believed everything that President Benson said. It was sacred to me, it was precious, and I took it very seriously. Latter-day Saints should make the study of the Book of Mormon a lifetime pursuit. I'm sure many of you feel the same way, that it hasn't been easy to let all of that go. And obviously, the fact that I'm here podcasting about Mormonism shows that I haven't entirely let it go myself. But, but even now, I still feel a certain tenderness when I hear President Benson's voice. I remember the way that my family would gather around the TV on Sundays when it was general conference and we got to stay home and be in our pajamas. And I remember the way that I tried to show my parents that I was becoming more responsible and more mature by actually sitting and listening to the messages instead of playing Legos on the floor with my younger brother. And I remember how I would feel when President Benson's voice would crack and strain with emotion. The Book of Mormon is the keystone in our witness of Jesus Christ, who is himself the cornerstone of everything we do. And it, it taught me how to respect and revere the wise testimony of my grandparents. And it just represents my youth. It represents a simpler time. And it kind of hurts me a little now, to be honest, uh, to think about how disappointed my grandparents would be if they knew what I had come to believe about the Book of Mormon and about the church in general. But 
It's because I took it seriously. I did what President Benson said. I made the Book of Mormon an object of study, and I took President Benson at his word that the truthfulness of the entire church hinges on the Book of Mormon being exactly what it claims to be. So we're going to spend the next few episodes looking closely at the Book of Mormon, specifically at how it was written. Now most Mormons will tell you that the book is far too complex and beautiful to have been written by an uneducated farm boy. Now this alone is evidence enough of its divine authorship, they would say. Now others claim that uh, the Book of Mormon really isn't so complex and beautiful as all that and that Joseph Smith is the sole author of this 19th century fiction and that his fingerprints are all over the text. And then there are others who believe that they see other fingerprints in the text. Fingerprints of Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, Parley P. Pratt, and a man named Solomon Spaulding, who wrote a book called Manuscript Found about 20 years before the Book of Mormon. Now, I think we're all very aware of the LDS claims that this is an ancient work preserved and translated through the power of God, and we're not going to spend much time, if any, exploring that explanation. Instead, we're going to focus on these other two theories, the Joseph Smith as sole author, as explained by historian John Hamer, and that will be what you hear on this episode, and then the Spalding-Rigdon theory, as explained by Stanford University professor Craig Criddle, which you will hear in part two. But first, you know what I'd love to hear? Wouldn't it be nice if Brother Jake would stop by and give us one of his patent-pending Book of Mormon synopsis? Synopsis? Synopses? Synopsis? Synopses? Hi, I'm Brother Jake. Now, there are some people out there wondering how exactly the Book of Mormon was written. Now, we all know what really happened. One night, Joseph Smith was praying, and an angel named Moroni came to his room. And Moroni told him about these cool golden plates that were buried in his backyard that were written by his people, who were the ancient inhabitants of America. Anyway, eventually, Joseph Smith went out and got those plates, and it turns out that they were written in reformed Egyptian characters. So he translated them into English through the power of God so that the world could know that Jesus came to America in the olden days and taught them almost word for word the same things he taught those Jewish people in the Bible. Now, the tool that Joseph Smith used to translate these plates was this thing called the Urim and Thummim, which is actually this rock he found while he was digging this one time. And by translate, I mean he would read the words from the plates to a scribe who would write them down. And by read the words from the plates, I mean he would drop a special seer stone into a hat, stick his face in the hat, and dictate whatever he saw from the stone in the hat while the actual plates were hidden away and wrapped in a completely different room or somewhere out in the woods. You know, translating. Now, there are some people out there who think that Joseph Smith wasn't actually translating a historical record of the ancient inhabitants of America by looking at a rock in a hat and that he was just making it up. But that's just crazy. I mean, yeah, it might kind of make sense since a bunch of the issues in theological ideas in the Book of Mormon were things that were hot topics in the region where Joseph Smith was living at the time that the Book of Mormon was published, and since the idea of him making it up would also account for the fact that many of the major elements of the civilization described in the Book of Mormon blatantly contradict the known archaeological record of North America, but he would have had to be some sort of super genius to dictate a 550-page book with his face buried in a hat, and we all know that even though he was incredibly wise and perceptive and righteous and literally the most important person to live since Jesus, he was really just a super not-smart, ignorant, backwoods, uneducated farm boy, so there's really no way he could have actually done all the things he actually did. So you really have to think, what's crazier? That a major civilization could rise and fall without leaving any discernible trace on the archaeological record? Or that one guy in the 1800s was really smart? It's actually really easy to find out. All you have to do is believe in the Book of Mormon just enough to do what it actually says and pray to find out if it's true. Well, not really if it's true, but really to know that it's true. And if you don't get that confirmation right off the bat, don't worry. Just keep trying and eventually you will. Because that's what religious knowledge is all about, really. Trying something over and over until you get the answer you knew you would from the very beginning. So let's get right to it, as I'm joined by Randy Snyder. I hear the strip clubs in Toronto are amazing. To discuss the Book of Mormon authorship with John Hamer. 
John Hamer was born and raised LDS, and he left the LDS church when he was about 18 years old. Um, And he didn't consider himself religious at all for several years until uh, after studying uh, and focusing on Mormon history, he he got interested in Mormon history and became associated with a group of RLDS, uh, the Community of Christ. Yeah, I got my undergrad degree in history, but then I was five years in a PhD program at the University of Michigan. Instead of deciding to be a professor, I just, I went into publishing, and so I started working for university presses. And as a result of doing family history, I was a lot of Mormon history. I'm seventh generation Latter-day Saint. And so um, then I started realizing how interesting Mormon history was. I'd always been raised with this really bland, wonderbread version of the, the Mormon story. It was so dull and boring. So I started doing that, and in, in the course of doing a lot of research into that, I came upon the Mormon history community and also the community of Christ history community and started to see what a um, powerful potential there was as a alternative progressive spiritual home for the very people that um, Boyd K. Packard labels as the enemies of the LDS church. Those three main enemies are exactly the people that, you know, community of Christ is desperate to have, right? So that's where he is now. He's a member of the community of Christ church in Toronto, Canada. And we're going to start this segment uh, with a question that Randy asked um, whether John approached uh, history from a purely academic standpoint or from a spiritual standpoint. No, I definitely Uh, take a spiritual approach to it. But, um, you know, I am a member of the church here and very active member of my congregation in in downtown Toronto, in Community of Christ. Uh, But the church is such a different kind of church and what spirituality and everything like that in our church is it's different. So it's hard to even describe that way. <laughs> so, right. Not I mean, so black it's not and like, white. Just like, um, biz, you know, the RLDS church is not anymore just like bizarro, you know, Mormon church. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's actually, it's totally different. It's <laughs> used to be like that. Now, for some reason, Randy's audio was cutting out a little bit here, so I'm going to ask the question that he asked once again. Uh, He wanted to know if John Hamer believed in the divinity of Christ or believed in the atonement. Now, this may not seem at this point that it's very pertinent to John's theories on Book of Mormon authorship, but he makes a point coming up here that I thought it was kind of important to get across to you. Uh, You'll see in a minute. In the divinity of Jesus Christ and the... And nope. the atonement? I don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ as the historical figure Jesus anyway. So I would separate out um, our ideas of Jesus. So um, of the historical Jesus, the person, I think that one of the things that we can say about the historical Jesus is that Jesus wasn't divine and that the historical Jesus was not resurrected. Uh, the Jesus of Scripture, which is we can talk about in, as a figure in Scripture in the same way we can talk about Nephi as a figure in Scripture. As a fictional character, right? If you want to say that, but yeah, anyway, okay. <laughs> as a character in the in the literature, right? Uh, the um, Jesus of Scripture obviously was resurrected, and then in the Christ of theology, uh, you know, the, the Christ of theology. I would say that the idea of um, Christ is, for me, theologically, is uh, the connection between uh, God, which is entirely infinite, not some anthropomorphic gendered sky dad or something like that, but instead the infinite that is therefore imponderable. How do we connect with the uh, imponderable as finite beings ourselves? And so 
we do that by making, you know, a model or we make an idea. We think of, you know, a father or we think of a mother or we think of any other thing. And we have that model. That model we can call, in my opinion, theologically, Christ, that connection in between. And we're fine having that as long as we understand that the model itself is something that we've created in order to ponder the imponderable. And so we can't worship the model. So if we think of, if we get really excited about our idea about Jesus or about a father image or whatever image we want to do for God, uh, and we start worshiping that God, then what we've done is created an idol. So, so that, that uh, third Jesus is like a reified construct. Yes. See, Randy? <laughs> you, see? Had to, you had to throw that in. <laughs> yeah. Got it. <laughs> reification. reification. <laughs> see what I mean? You can never have enough reification. Well, I, I think that I think that can segue pretty nicely to the first question that we have um, in this outline. We, you know, we we wanted to first cover what the major theories are on the Book of Mormon authorship, and of course, there is the the main LDS theory that I, I think we all grew up with and we all know pretty well. And and so, my first question to you, John, is: Does the community of Christ? church have the same type of narrative? And you've said no. So I, I'm curious to hear more about that. What, what, does the, what, what does your church believe about the authorship of the Book of Mormon? Um, the church, I think, doesn't take—I don't think it takes any position on the authorship of the Book of Mormon any more than any of the other parts of the Scripture. Okay. So um, the church has a, a, pol- a statement on Scripture, which is kind of our Scripture concept— um, which our idea of Scripture is that Scripture is human response to the divine, and so and that Scripture is its itself um, a human thing that is also dependent on um, time and place in history, so in context and culture. So one of the reasons why Scripture, all Scripture, all through the Bible, everything like that, may, you know, has all kinds of uh, stuff in it uh, that we don't find morally appropriate now is that that was. The, you know, the context in which the author was existing. But there's something so, fundamentally different between um, how the Bible came to be and the Book of Mormon, which is a claim that there were actual gold plates and that they were written in Reformed Egyptian. So does, does, does the community of Christ believe in the actual existence of gold plates in that whole story? The community of Christ allows you to decide whatever you want on that. So, in other words, you, if you, as different members, can believe anything they want as to when they do their own, their own research. People are encouraged to do their own research on any of the books of Scripture, and to decide what they, you know, what they think is the case on any of them. So, so when you guys have your your version of a, a Sunday school or an elders quorum or whatever those meetings are, and you're talking about a passage from the Book of Mormon or a, a character like Nephi, it it wouldn't be necessarily the way that it is in an LDS church where this person really existed, but, but it's maybe he did, maybe he didn't. What lessons can we learn from the text? Is that more of the approach? Well, it would depend entirely on who's teaching it. Yeah. But, but yeah, the, I mean, so, so, so in my own congregation, we have definitely have at least one guy who was a real, um, Book of Mormon historicist or whatever you want to call it. So the person who actually is very concerned with the different, members and they, you know, different characters as literal historical figures and what they were like and that kind of thing. Uh, I think that he's probably one of the few people that believes that because I've just started teaching, I'm teaching the, the, the adult Sunday school class and we've just started, um, kind of a, kind of a 
section on the Book of Mormon where we're, where I'm, we're going through a new book that a um, former member of the First Presidency has written on a pro, a different ways Community of Christ might approach the different evidence about the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's two new books this year that Community of Christ published on the Book of Mormon, one by a former member of the First Presidency and one by a former, member, former apostle. Uh, the one has all kinds of different approaches. That's, that's the one we're reading first. And then the second one is how to approach um, the Book of Mormon as a 19th century text. Hmm. And most of the people in my congregation, um, there's a couple that are kind of on the fence and they haven't decided one way or the other what the exact things are, but most of them feel that, you know, the old truth claims to haven't held up. And as a result, they're uncomfortable with the Book of Mormon. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so then the other two main uh, theories that I'm aware of, um, and, and I got to say, I, I haven't done a lot of really deep research on this. And that's why, you know, we've asked you on to help us understand this, but the, the, we might be able to simplify it by calling it the single author theory that, you know, Joseph Smith was pretty much the sole author, maybe some input from the scribes. Um, and then the other theory would be that, uh, you know, there was the Spalding manuscript that kind of came through Sidney Rigdon and that helped influence Joseph Smith as, as well. Um, so maybe that could be simplified by saying a single author theory and then, you know, Joseph Smith with, you know, help or collaboration or something like that. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, well, I guess the Joseph. Yeah, we, we can say Joseph Smith as author theory, or Spalding with the Rigdon Spalding theory, however you want to call it. Well, I think that Joseph Smith, the sole author, can be broken up into two. One is inspired fiction, and the other is a pious fraud. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I guess I keep trying to drill down to to what, what John uh, thinks. Do you think it's inspired by your God? the Book of Mormon, or do you think it was a pious fraud? Well, I think that, um, so I, the way I view scripture is I think that this is um, human response to uh, the divine. And so uh, you can find inspiration all kinds of places, and we can say that this is an, ins- you know, an inspired response. I don't myself um, think of scripture as being anything remotely like God, um, uh, you know, sending a telegram to, and the prophet is somehow a mouthpiece. I would rather like use for myself the analogy, um, that there is, uh, maybe like a, like a river of revelation that you decide to dip into, but every single person can do that. It has nothing to do with, um, you getting a telegram from God. But one of the two, Joseph is a, knows that he's a con man, and the other one, he's, he's being inspired by God. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying, right. my distinction? Okay, there? yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, even with pious fraud, so like um, Dan Vogel said, I mean, so the idea there is still, it's not a guy being a con man, right? It's a, rather a guy who has um, understandable ends and motives that he find, thinks are justifiable motives, who is making all the many kind of human compromises 
uh, white lies and other kinds of things that we make, but maybe in this case has gone further and further into dubious things to do, <laughs> you know, or something <laughs> like that, that we may not justify, you know. And so what I would say for myself is, um, would I feel justified in doing all the different things that Joseph Smith did in, in announcing the book of Revelation and the way he did? And I, and I, and I wouldn't. Um, I think that for Joseph Smith, um, his motives are, are are actually spelled out in the Book of Mormon um, uh, ethics or morality in several places where the story itself um, says essentially by your fruits you'll know them it's better that this and that happen than than bad you know than you know it's better that a bad thing is done that then uh, you know like then the uh, gospel is not brought forth to everyone and yeah, so a bad the, thing like a decapitation of an unconscious yeah exactly thing. better to better kill people than to, you know so in other words it, it actually makes an extreme case for itself about in other words it's better if it's so much better for us to not have um uh america you know not not accept christianity or not have the indians not have the native americans um not accept christ it's it's would be better for me to actually go out and kill somebody so how much less is it for me when people don't believe uh, that I have actually um, have this access to the spiritual force of these plates that I actually then have got to go and make a prop in order to um, get them to believe it? So, so did, uh, I got a little bit. I'm going to have to listen back to that one. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so did you just suggest that? You know, Joseph, basically the ends justify the means, and so he could create a facsimile of plates that would give some credibility to the story that he really believed in, that there was a greater good um, in, in telling the story and promoting these ideas, and maybe even that he was tapping into this river of revelation, but he knew that there were certain props that he needed to create in order to encourage that belief in others. Is that is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I'm saying that... Yes, that's what I'm saying. I, my take on Joseph Smith is everybody has their own take on Joseph Smith, right? <laughs> so, yeah, right. And so, um, and so, my take on him is that he has um, he has pious intentions. He wants to bring people to Christ on the one hand, but more importantly, he wants to end sectarianism and bring his you know in his immediate family. He wants to bring them together, uh, and and so I think that those are kind of his pious goals. Anyway, he has other goals too that are probably less pious, uh, and then uh, he has a. Th- personal philosophy or morality or ethics where he thinks that um, you can go pretty far into the ends justified the means. He can do a lot of means that I wouldn't consider to be valid, you know, something you could ethically do. And so uh, for me, uh, Joseph Smith does stuff that I, I would not say, oh, this was wonderful that he did it. And he, it's, these are things for which I would condemn him for having done them. And, and, and those things, we're talking specifically about things that he did around the creation of the Book of Mormon. I mean, we're not getting into Nauvoo era. No, well, that that he did. then too, obviously, is bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, but yeah, but, no, in, in terms of the plates. In other words, he, I think that, for example, the, the, the statements that he crafts, uh, he writes for the witnesses, the witnesses or something to sign, are um, intentionally, you know, uh, they, they're intentionally deceptive uh, in the same exact way. Like later, he does the same exact thing in Nauvoo where he, he 
claims that he's not a polygamist because he is using the word polygamy to be the bad thing, whereas pol- he never is a polygamist. Of course not. He's because he, he's having practicing celestial marriage, you know. Right, yeah. And so, but but it's a Clintonian what we call it like Clintonian lying kind of thing. Right. And he and the and the statement of the eight witnesses is is like this technical, true walking through a minefield kind of thing. But if it's designed at the end of the day for people to misunderstand it, which they do. Uh, and simultaneously, the same exact thing. He's writing a um, a history that everybody around him believes is true. Everybody actually has this idea that Native Americans must have some kind of biblical past. It may well be yeah. uh, that they're ancient Israelites or anything like that. That that idea existed before the Book of Mormon. You're saying it's all over the place. Yeah, everybody right. believes that, yeah. uh, and they're not actually even worried about that as an idea. But he and and so he's he's giving voice to that history by telling telling stories to make that happen in my opinion you know yeah. and so that's what he's doing and then people um and you can have and he can and it can be a spiritual thing because he is visionarily thinking of plates and making that happen but people don't believe him about the plates without actually having they want to hold them and stuff you know and so then he makes a prop and that obviously that is where you're really starting to cross or actually have gone really far into having crossed the line into <laughs> yeah, honest behavior, right? Yeah. So, so it, it, so. Sounds, it sounds like it's um, a synthesis of those two sub-branches that Randy said earlier, that it, it's a bit of the pious fraud, but also there's that element of divinity um, behind it as well. Well, I think that anybody, in other words, I think that that's a pious motive. I think that anybody can be inspired and can write you know, it can write things that are inspiring, and and that's how you live life in a, you know, so wait, a way so that Joseph, is actually good. Jo- Joseph Smith to you is is no different than any of us. He doesn't have any special power in your mind. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, it's it is kind of a fusion of a materialist and a dualist. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of you kind of you kind of split the horns there. Okay. So. We, we, we've kind of covered in at a high level the the Joseph Smith as sole author idea. We'll get into more more detail in that. Um, but how about the the Spalding Rigdon theory? Um, what, what is that state? So, um, just as an overview of the Spalding theory, there is a man named Solomon Spalding who um, is living in a town called Conneaut, Ohio, something like fifteen or twenty years before the composition of the Book of Mormon. Uh, period, and he uh, was a a failed land speculator, and one of the ways he'd hoped to um, reclaim his fortune and get back on his feet is by writing, you know, a great American novel. And in his case, the novel was how did um, where did uh, Native Americans come from, and uh, how can we um, kind of give voice to the myth that everyone believed at the time, the myth of the mound builders, this ancient civilization that must have existed that had built all these mounds in Ohio, these fortresses, like Fort Ancients, they're actually fortresses, but they're big ceremonial complexes of mounds that the Americans at the time believed were fortifications. And because of the um, terrible the condition that American Indians had fallen into by the 19th century um, European Americans did not believe that in, that the natives had the capacity to make those, and so the uh, myth that got created was that there had been, you know, some other er, earlier civilization that the natives had exterminated, uh, and and so Spalding wrote a novel um, 
to that effect. That novel was later found and was found to not um, be the Book of Mormon, um, but people imagined or people theorized that he had written a second novel, and that second novel is um, generally I thought to be the Book of Mormon without all of the religious parts. It's like the religious parts were later added. That second novel, which may or may not exist, um, found its way into a, a print shop in Pittsburgh where Sidney Rigdon would have had access to it. And then, and according to then this theory, Sidney Rigdon secretly had gave it to Joseph Smith, and that became the origin for the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I believe that it was, it was called Manuscript Found. The, the, um, the yeah, it's like that. One of them's called. They're both called about the same thing: the manuscript story, and the other one's called manuscript found. Maybe. So yeah. the first one is called manuscript story, and the and the missing one or the theoretical one is called manuscript found. Now, what what what's the basis for the second manuscript? Um, you know, the theoretical one. If if there haven't been any copies of it discovered or any ref, are there references to it? Do you yeah. know what the what, yeah, what's the basis the, for that? The only there's only one set of positive evidence for the Spalding theory. And so the, the positive evidence for it is uh, what do we call the, call the Hurlbut affidavit. So my, um, this is actually a relative of mine. So, you know, one of my great, great, great <laughs> cousins, Philastus Hurlbut, he's a disgruntled ex-Mormon. Um, he uh, has working with, he's working with um, some of the more propertied uh, anti-Mormons who are trying to come up with um, ways to discredit the Mormons, who they don't like having in their in their backyard, and uh, so he they hire Hurlbut to go around and to dig up bad information, and he's quite able to do that by going to Palmyra and Harmony, where he gets all kinds of really um, uh, salacious um, affidavits about Joseph Smith's past as a money digger and a treasure seer. And those all proved to be very, very um, not, I mean, they may be a little extra salacious or whatever, but they, they have some basis in Joseph's actual past, right? But he goes to the town of Conneaut because he hears that the people of Conneaut have, have, come, have come across this theory where they think the Book of Mormon is, um, uh, is actually a, a, a uh, like, it's actually been a, a ripoff of Solomon Spaulding's book that they remember that um, Solomon had been writing. And so he goes there. Um, they had been, they have this copy of the Book of Mormon that they've been reading, and they all remember Solomon Spaulding kind of reading from his manuscript, and they remember the two to being pretty identical in a lot of details. And so they, um, there's a whole bunch of affidavits taken down, and so they sound really good. And so as a result of that, um, the theory ended up being extremely popular all through the 19th century. I'm not a technical expert. So Craig Criddle's done a um, computer analysis of the language. Uh, word print. Word printing. And, um, and so his, his conclusions, or he believes that, that um, having tested the, the existing Spalding novel, um, that, that that tests positive with the Book of Mormon text. Um, and so, and then there's been other word prints that don't do that. I, I think that the problem with that... Um, his analysis in the first place is that uh, there's a lot of reasons why uh, the Spalding theory doesn't fit the historical narrative at all. And so it's not, I mean, you can do all kinds of things by um, doing a computer analysis where you're drawing lines and this and that. I don't think that actually it's um, responsible probably even to have included 
Spalding as one of the potential authors. And, so. and uh, is there any speculation? You, you mentioned that that uh, second manuscript, the manuscript found, would have been the basis for, you know, like the, the historical, the kings, the, the wars, things like that. But, but that then maybe Joseph would have been the spirit. Well, the reason why, the reason why people said that was so that when, once they found the, the manuscript story, then that was a big, you know, deflated the theory a lot. And so they went, people who were still interested in the theory went around to have a second round of affidavits. And I think that they, they talked to maybe Spalding's daughter and things like that. And so they came up with the, the, the idea that there's a second manuscript and then some of the people were talking about the historical parts. Actually, in the original affidavit, some of the people are talking about, well, they, they don't remember all the religious parts being there. And so they, there's an idea that it was maybe reworked. Maybe Sidney Rigdon reworked it or maybe Joseph Smith was reworking it with Oliver Cowdery or somebody's reworking it. Mm-hmm. And this, the second round of affidavits, that was, that, that was decades later, right? I believe so. Yeah, I don't. Okay. So your, uh, your belief is that uh, Joseph Smith wrote it entirely on his own? Well, or with any amount of input on with the scholar with the scribes that you want to say, I think that Joseph Smith, on my opinion, Joseph Smith is the author of the Book of Mormon, but he's he has a time period when he's not just he's not composing round the clock. Um, he's spending time talking to Oliver Cowdery. Um, that just even a, a month or so into that process of talking to Oliver Cowdery, or maybe brainstorming with Oliver Cowdery, or telling stories, or Oliver Cowdery's asking him questions, that's resulting in them having. Um, questions which become you know dnc revelations right so they'll have a question they'll they'll pray about it then they'll get a dnc revelation that's an answer that's in a way brainstorming right yeah right because you're having that in the same exact way at a certain point even um joseph says well if you if you want to you can be the one that's actually doing the the um the dictation composing oliver you know so i mean i don't i don't want to say that he's like you know, completely just composing in total isolation or anything like that. I mean, he's he's, he's got time to um, do some back and forth that he's doing there during the daytime. So, well, the only the only scribe the only scribe that I can think because it was Emma, there was David Whitmer, and there was uh, Oliver Cowdery. It Martin seems like Harris Oliver did for a time. And well, Martin Harris, come on, he was not very sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in other words, yeah, the main input there would probably be. Cowdery then. But I mean, so a lot you, of people want to put a lot of input into the scribes. I'm not saying it's necessary, but, you know, it, we, we can't say how much input Oliver Cowdery had or didn't have. Well, th- this raises interesting questions to me uh, uh, because Oliver Cowdery is so central to the, the development of the Book of Mormon and especially these miraculous stories, you know, the angels appearing to them, being baptized, you know, the first elder in the church and all of that. Uh, were, were those... Were those part of the, you know, you mentioned earlier that there were unethical tactics that Joseph Smith took. So would these have been lies that were spread that Oliver Cowdery then uh, supported? Or did he believe what what he, he thought that he saw these things? I mean, what's your, what's your uh, theory there? Well, the first one of those visions is, is actually the, it's not the, the priesthood stuff and the baptism stuff. Mm-hmm. The first one that anybody would have known about is actually the, um, um, the vi- you know, the vision of the plates, you know, where the angel comes and brings 
the plates and shows them to uh, Oliver Cowdery and, and David Whitmer and Martin Harris. And we have a, the three witnesses story. Yeah, yeah, the three witnesses story. And we have a pretty reasonable account of how that goes. So I think we can understand how visions work, where you have a um, visions are visionary, and everybody can have a vision right now, and they're just closing their eyes. And, you know, you, as a spiritual practice, you can even do this. You can do this as like meditation, where you have one kind of a group leader. You're, you know, saying, you know, close your eyes. You know, you're saying, do you see. You know, uh, this, I, 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 we could do this where you like do this thing where you're feeling energy passing over you and it, you know, and it comes, you know, you feel it pass down you as it goes out your feet, all of your stress is left, right? That's yeah. one way that people do that even right now. But in the past, with the way these kind of visions are happening, these guided visions, it's like, you, do you see the angel? He is white. He's, uh, he's dressed in white. He's glowing. His raiment is this way. And then David Whitmer says, I see it. You know, he's envisioning it. Uh, same thing, Oliver Cowdery. And we even know that in the course of them doing that, um, Martin Harris is like, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. You know, he's really mad about it, right? And right. so at a certain point, <laughs> they have him go away, right? And so then they finish their vision, and then Joseph is able to, you know, do a, a vision with Martin Harris where Martin, at the end of it, he says, it's enough. It's enough, you know, or whatever, you know? And so you then just, Martin uh... later got in trouble because people asked him, well, did you see it with your naked eyes or your spiritual eyes? And he, and he was saying spiritual eyes. And so Joseph, at some point or other, told him, you're... Your 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 a lot your place is to affirm your written testimony there as a witness and not to tell details <laughs> so or whatever right so I have to say that you, this is the first time I've ever gotten a plausible like vis, uh, like uh, visualization yeah of what that whole scenario looked like in real right. life uh, that's that's really cool yeah Thanks the guided imagery. I mean, I've heard people suggest hypnosis before. Um, no, but... no, I don't. Hypnosis is not necessary for this guy. Right, and, exactly. And I, I, people yeah. also want to have like them smoking drugs or something. Not, yeah. It's not necessary to have any of that stuff. I mean, there's a later vision that they're having in Kirtland Temple where it's the same way, where it's like a guided vision. They're saying, "Do you see this? I see this." You know, I mean, when everywhere we have it actually written down, where they're talking about how it actually happens. Mm -hmm. That's how, this is how it happens. You know. Yeah, but it's that it's that power of suggestion, working on. The, the imagination, right? Well, and then and then there's peer pressure. When the first guy says he sees it, well, then you know, <laughs> I don't, sure. I don't. You know, you 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 said this phrase earlier, John, that I really liked the the river of revelation. So yes. as, as Joseph is doing this guided visionary tactic, is is he encouraging them to tap into something that is actually divine and it's outside of themselves, or is it just something that you think? came from their own imagination within. And I know you don't know. I'm just asking yeah, you. Yeah, I don't you know if I want to say that. I, I, I think that it in tapping into something like that, you're talking about something that is from within. Okay. So I think that I don't want to have a, us be totally separated off from any of that stuff. Yeah. So um, I guess I would say that when we're, we're doing that, we can be doing this in, you know, um, it, we have to, I guess, kind of look at what, everybody's motives and what everybody's thinking as they're doing it all are too, because everything that we're doing is also a human thing. Cause we're all humans. But so one, it, one of the things that stood out to me though, is that you, your theory is it was a collaboration between Joseph Smith and uh, Oliver Cowdery, which would mean would suggest that Oliver Cowdery all along knew it was a, you know, it wasn't what they were claiming it was to the public and one of the arguments that a lot of people make against uh, the conspiracy between Rigdon and Cowdery and Smith is that Cowdery, you know, he was excommunicated by Joseph. He was humi publicly humiliated. 
Right. Uh, he never he never once exposed Joseph that the Book of Mormon was a fraud and here's how it happened. But in your theory, that you have the same problem. Well, I don't necessarily think I don't necessarily think that Oliver, though, in in the course of what I'm saying, even thinks it's a fraud. Right. Therefore, I'm just saying he has any more than Joseph thinks it's a fraud. I think that the, I don't think that Joseph is thinking that it's a fraud. I think that if he was to actually be, you know. If he, he was actually be confronted in the face with the you know the worst things, and you're saying, well, look, there weren't any actual physical gold plates, though, you know, <laughs> you know that I mean that he might have to admit it or something at some level, but I think he generally speaking was not thinking that to himself. In other words, I think that he is thinking that this is um, you know how we are accessing or how we're going to recover this history that we all know is the case. Uh, and that will have the good ends of ending sectarianism and bringing the American Indians to Christ. So I think that he doesn't necessarily think it's a fraud, and I think that Oliver doesn't necessarily think it's a fraud, or he's, I mean, it's a kind of thing where you, you, I don't think that people often are are actually operating too often where they, um, yes, sometimes people are really obvious frauds, but this is something that I think is happening more as a life work thing, and I think that they are they're not operating that way myself. That's just what I think. But, you know, you can easily make the case that they're frauds. Well, and, and the way so. that you described it earlier, the, the collaboration, it sounded more to me like Oliver was kind of a springboard for Joseph's ideas. That, that, that's what I would mean. In other words, yeah. Oliver knows that jo- Joseph is composing this. And yeah. In other words, he's dictating it. And, and, and as far as he's concerned, Joseph has said that it's being dictated off, of, you know, using the, the plates as a spiritual avatar or whatever. It's not with him. They're off in the woods or whatever. But th- that focus point or spiritual focus point is allowing this um, inspired composition to take place. But it's more or less what it, he's doing is, you know, this kind of oral composition of spontaneous preaching the same way that um, like a preacher of the day would have done. They're not, the preachers are often, you know, in the early church, they weren't allowed to, or they didn't think it was right to work from prepared sermons most of the time in the same way you don't want to have, you know, in LDS church, you don't want to have a red prayer anymore, right? You see, you're supposed to, or never was supposed to have a red prayer. So in the same way, you're like cutting yourself off from the spirit. Well, people, you know, could make these sermons last four hours or so. And story, people just were better at oral composition and oral storytelling and all that kind of thing. And that I think is what's happening. And that could have been pretty convincing to Oliver and maybe even when he tried to do it and couldn't do it that also convinced him so I don't necessarily think that Oliver is in on it and thinking oh this is a real fraud and that's so I don't think that when he would have left that um, he has anything in his in his pocket that he wants to say is a fraud so yeah and you know Randy asked the question earlier if you thought that Joseph had any special gifts or if he was just like anybody else and I I I think that he had had a greater capacity for for memory and for storytelling um, than the average person, and well, I, th- I took that... the question to mean magic powers, magic, right. as opposed okay. to I mean, as opposed to just yeah. And he's a religious genius. Yeah, there's right. all kinds of Harold Bloom. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's great things about him, in, in the, and and he has serious flaws too. Yeah, <laughs> so. right. But but so uh, taking that approach, it it wouldn't be too difficult to understand why Oliver Cowdery would be very impressed with what he was experiencing, and, and maybe unaware of his own contributions to to the process sure yeah okay. it is interesting though that um well i get because he you know he he later said that joseph was a fallen prophet when he had the whole fanny Alger thing came to a head and it seems like that would have painted his memory of how things went down with the book of mormon in possibly a more negative light but but he never does 
Uh, I, right. I don't know if that uh, that is kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I don't know it's their their relationship. I mean, I think that at some point or other, um, you know, Justice Smith would have like major. He would he had this thing where on the one hand he would um, get new best friends pretty fast, and he would just he had only known Oliver Cowdery for just a short time, and they became like just uh, you know the collaborators on this project where. Um, Joseph had hardly been able to write anything for ever since the last 116 pages, and now suddenly they write the whole thing in you know, three, four months or whatever it is. And so, um, uh, in the same exact way, you know, the Whitmers, you know, David Whitmer comes in and he's, you know, he's such so big in the church real fast. Same thing. Somehow, suddenly, Frederick G. Williams, or you know, and there's he makes Edward Partridge the bishop, and and he's really close friends with uh, John C. Bennett and whatever. You know, in other words, these things just he brings a guy right into the leadership. Sidney Rigdon, obviously, as soon as Sidney Rigdon comes, he, suddenly he's you know co-equal, super leader, yeah, co-equal. <laughs> and so he was he was willing to do that a lot, but then he also is pretty quick to um, you know when, when they're having a fight, he's pretty quick to to cut ties and the person is the worst person ever, you know, and all that kind of thing. And so I think that, that maybe there was a, but he'll also forgive. So I don't know. I think that maybe in their relationship, Oliver Cowdery is waiting at some point or other for Joseph Smith to like offer an olive branch to reconcile and they'll come back and reconcile. And that never happens. And Joseph Smith dies. And then, and then Oliver, then he himself acts because he other hadn't otherwise he's been off living a different life as a lawyer in Ohio uh, he goes and investigates. He moves to Wisconsin, right near where Strang lives. He investigates the Strangites. His brother's kind of been with there or joining or looking at the Strangites. He doesn't like that. He writes some letters to David Whitmer and says um, that all of the different movements, Rigdon, Strang, Brigham Young, the Twelve, they've all raised banners up and they say, low here, low there. And, he's, and now, the, you know, now the Twelve have taken charge of the people and are taking them west, but the Twelve have not the keys to lead the church. You and I do, David Whitmer. Uh, but the problem is, of course, that both of them are out of the church. So he goes, he gets himself rebaptized, then he goes to David Whitmer's house, and they may well be planning to have some kind of a, a thing where they are going to announce like their own leadership or something. But anyway, he dies before that happens. What is your, like, um, I, don't want, I want something longer than an elevator speech. <laughs> uh, but do you have kind of like in, in your mind like a bullet point list of of the strongest um, points of evidence that Joseph Smith was a sole author? Or is it just not even something because you don't find any other uh, theory to be plausible that it's kind of the default Occam's razor? Um, well, we have – so the first the point is the, the – um, like the entire – what we have in, the, in terms of the entire historical narrative, there are so many um, – descriptions uh there's this actual affidavits there's so many recollections about everything around the whole time period uh about you know either from before the actual composition you know joseph his mom later recalling that him him composing stories as a teenager about the ancient americans to him talking about getting the plates for a long time to you know all of the different um writing, how the writing process is happening, you know, the um, uh, face in the hat, everything like that. And that as a natural outgrowth, really, of his treasure seer work before that. Um, then later, obviously, all of 
um, his other compositions. So it's not like he, only, you know, he continues to do this. So the DNC is actually begins to be composed at the same time. It's yeah, it interspersed initially and then continues on. Um, he later uh, works on, you know, writing. Well, there's the later the Book of Abraham, the the inspired version of or, or Joseph Smith Bible's re- revision, and. Um, and, and, and also composing the composing his own history, for example, the JST, yeah, it's called in the LDS Church. So, in other words, I'd say that all that all the, his other writings hang together, and also just the record we have of the whole composition process and all that it's happening at the time. Um, it, and and then the book itself, um, I mean, for one thing, it announces, um, you know, ac- you know. Joseph Smith as the author, it predicts Joseph Smith will be the author. It's saying that, you know, a Joseph, son of a Joseph, who's a descendant of Joseph of Egypt, is going to be the choice seer that, you know, will come to translate the book. Uh, and then internally, the book is um, uh, in some places, it's a lot of places that like any first um, writer's uh, first book, it's autobiographical in so many ways. So, you know, you have this this Nephi character who's a, not the eldest son, who has this uh, but he's the leader son who has, you know, this bad relationship or, you know, at least a relationship that is um, uh, a relationship of rivals with the eldest son, you know, who who had all the attention and stuff like that maybe. But then he, why he's the righteous, actual righteous one. He's got the same visionary dad. The dad has the same exact visions that Lehi, Lehi has the same visions that Joseph Smith Sr. has had. Uh, it's, it's so, so the book just has all of this um, Joseph Smith fingerprints all over it. It, ta- it uh, There's all kinds of places in the book where it reads like a oral composition. It's like, instead of it being a, um, a, uh, a tightly composed book where they're you know, like, where, like it's supposed to be, which is supposed to be written on tiny gold plates. So you have every little word is, is, uh, is critical. Instead, it's like an oral composer where the, the guy's trying to run out the clock. He doesn't have any much more content to do. Lots of run on sentences. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I guess I don't see anything in it to why we wouldn't um, just, you know, like you say, Occam's Razor is just see. Well, the author is Joseph Smith. So, it, aren't there aren't there signatures of Sidney Rigdon in there as well? Uh, doctrines that were Campbellite, Campbellite doctrines and and things like that. Well, the Whitmers also um, may have been Campbellites. Mm. Uh, so Restorationism is not. Um, uh, not an unknown thing. It's not like Sidney Reagan's the only Campbellite. Um, I would say that probably that where, where the reason I think that the the coincidence there, if we want to call it a coincidence, isn't that Rigdon was there putting Campbellite doctrine into the Book of Mormon, but rather the reason why someone like Sidney Rigdon, who was mm-hmm. an important guy, actually um, was attracted to the book. Yeah was because it had Campbellite doctrine that maybe the Whitmers had suggested when, you know, or somebody like that, or maybe Oliver Cowdery. And, and that Campbellite doctrine, again, that, that's the idea of restoration, like restoring the primitive church. Is that the main? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so for example, and when they, you know, when they, um, you know, even before Sidney Rigdon's involved in the movement, when they found the church, they called the Church of Christ, that's exactly what Campbell did and the other Campbell and the other restorationists at the time are doing they're they're deciding that the that the church has to be um, operated only on scriptural precedent and the only name of the church in scripture in the New Testament is either Church of God or Church of Christ and so they called it Church of Christ um, that that you had to look to um, 
the New Testament and other places in order, in, in order to find out what the most early apostolic church was like. And so the only offices you should have in the church, the priesthood offices, should be the ones that are listed in there, like elder and teacher, priest, bishop. Um, and, and so that's like the initial, the initial stages of it being a restoration church. Um, but there were multiple restoration churches, and that's why that Campbellitism is ultimately called the Stone Campbell movement. That's a combination of the disciples of Christ, the churches yeah. of Christ, all that kind of thing. So it's it certainly has you know like overlap even before Sidney Rigdon gets involved with with it's a restorationist style church, and even the idea of the Book of Mormon is restorationist in a way because um, part of the 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 need is. Um, since we only acknowledge scripture as a as this way to end sectarian arguments, what we need actually is new scripture that will actually end them. So the Book mm-hmm. of Mormon is able to yeah. end all of these different, or theoretically end all these different sectarian controversies like infant baptism right. or the how to baptize or what do we think about the atonement? What does that mean? All of the, you know, whether we can have wrote prayers, creeds. I love the Book of Moroni because that's all it is. Is just like slam, slam, slam. This is the answer. This controversy. Yeah. This is the answer. That controversy. So let it be said. So let it be done. Amen. Yeah. Well, and and so that part's writ- being written right when there's you know getting ready to make a church, right? So that's why another reason why you know so Spalding's been dead for you know however many fifteen years or whatever. Whereas the Book of Mormon text, you know, like it's tracking. If you read like Dan Vogel's *The Making of a Prophet*, I think he goes overboard with it. But I think that he, he you have to address his case if you want to have some other authorship theory about how the Book of Mormon, as you're writing it along there, is tracking not only autobiographically Smith's life, but what's going on in the in the time period right around them in, in uh, during the composition phase. Is is it possible to use the Book of Mormon also as you're tracing the evolution of Joseph Smith's theology or? Or Mormon theology, or are there uh, is there any evidence that you know Joseph Smith believed in uh, you know degrees of glory or th- or you know celestial marriage or concepts that didn't show up until later you know that weren't in the Book of Mormon? Did, does that question make sense? Sure. Yeah. So it definitely tracks. I mean, so the Book of Mormon has very different theology than High High Nauvoo theology. None of the ideas of progression theology for example that it doesn't exist yet yeah so the and book of mormon Trini- it's trinitarian extremely it's trinitarian. trinitarian yeah yeah it really is and so so he the book of mormon is you know so the rest of the scripture that it, that exists the new testament is written pre trinity <laughs> in other words christians hadn't come up with that idea yet and so people looked in vain you know they they've tried to find different texts out of there to make trinity out of it but it's all but it's pre-trinity and so the book of mormon being written it being a post-trinitarian document um is able to include all kinds of you know very strong expressions of the trinity so so that's that's an evidence for for the book of mormon being a 19th century creation rather than an, an ancient text but i i guess my question was is, is there any is there any evidence that Joseph Smith actually believed uh, or had kernels of um, belief that later became this, you know, high Nauvoo theology at the time that he wrote the Book of Mormon, that if he were the author of the Book of Mormon, you would expect him to put those things in there, but he oh. didn't. So then people might say, oh, see, Joseph Smith didn't write it because this is, you know, Trinitarian or whatever and not Elohim and Jehovah and becoming gods and progression and all that. I don't think that my. I think that what we can say is that he hasn't thought of those ideas yet. Yeah. Those so it's, it's, now, on the other hand, yeah. polygamy he may have been already have a little temptation because he he in the in the book of Jacob there's a condemnation of it. Yeah. Right? 
Although there's a little out clause. There, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, there's an out clause. <laughs> in, unless God commands it. Yeah. Right. And so, so that maybe is a prefiguring. I mean, I don't know. So another thing that's happening is that, you know, I mean, that would date it to the time period that Joseph Smith's writing it as opposed to when Solomon's balding is around is that it's happening right in this, um, this high moment of, um, you know, the, um, the Masonic scandal, the, so the, uh, the Morgan, mm-hmm. Murder. The murder, right? Or you know, and so so the the person who's written the expose of the the Masons has gone missing, or in the and the trial of it, the, the, there's the, this theory that Masonic judges are, have been excusing them, and then it's also si- simultaneously up in the you know there's this election of Jackson. Later, the Mormons are become Jacksonian. They later become Masons. But at this moment, at the in the time, people are worried that that um, Jackson is going to, uh, you know, I don't know, this is, I think it, it's prefigures in the Book of Mormon as the king men, you know, that we're going to have a king come in and, the, mm-hmm. and there's these secret combinations of Gadianch and robbers, the Masons who are convert, you know, subverting the, the judgment seats. So I think that that is, again, speaking to the time period that uh, the Book of Mormon is composed as opposed to Connie at Ohio. Yeah, but I mean, you, you could allow that the Spalding manuscript and Sidney Rigdon uh, being the author, Sidney Rigdon is in that same milieu and and could have used the Spalding manuscript as a real bare-bones skeleton. Um, and yeah. that stuff could have come from Sidney Rigdon as well as Joseph uh, to, Smith. To, to me, though, in, in order to accept that, you have to... You have to imagine that Sidney Rigdon met Joseph Smith much earlier than is actually recorded, right? Well, you yeah, have to imagine that, yeah. You have yeah, to. But there's no evidence for that. No. So I mean, you're starting to so you, so yeah, you can make all kinds of elaborated theories that start to get really, you know. But there's no, but again, without any additional positive evidence, it's it's hard to justify those ideas. And so so in order for to have this meeting place of Sidney Rigdon with Joseph much earlier on, you have to have one. Why does why does Sidney Rigdon, who's a successful preacher who has a hold of this manuscript, why does he pick pluck Joseph Smith out? as the guy to be the translator of the thing or the guy who's doing the show. And it, well, it's the not... argument I've heard is that uh, Sidney Rigdon, if he had come out with this book, no one would have taken him seriously. He needed kind of a fresh front man and, uh, and, 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 and then, you know, somehow came into contact with Joseph Smith without anyone um, actually recording or, or mentioning uh, that you know, Sidney Rigdon was in town today to see yes. Joseph. Um, I mean, it's it's certainly more possible back in the in the woods oh, yeah. in eighteen twenties uh, for this to happen without anyone knowing. Um, but I guess, uh, I guess I mean, my question in that, in, although, is why why would he have picked this random guy out in the middle of nowhere who is nobody? You know, it's it, it was it was hard to imagine. Even once Joseph is doing this project, even he has to go through an awful lot of conniving of Martin Harris and other people to get the thing published and stuff. And it just seems like it's such a, a hanging strange circuitous route for Sidney Rigdon to have, to have bothered to go through on the one hand. And then later in order to the actual, we also have to then invalidate their actual meeting story, which is that um, it relies on um, Parley P. Pratt, who is one of Sidney Rigdon's friends or, actual collaborators is is like on the Erie Canal. He gets off at Palmyra. He hears the story. He goes to uh, look around for Joseph Smith, ultimately gets 
ultimately gets a copy of the book. He ultimately sends back, and he's the one who talks to Sydney, right? Um, where they go back together in the Lamanite mission. But the, so, the, so in other words, we have another conspirator that's there because Parley P. Pratt has to at least have been in on that. that portion. Unless he's a dupe in a long con. Well, it, to, for that to happen, <laughs> well, in other words, he has to have that's, been. That's Glenn really, being sarcastic. Yeah, he, Randy recognizes my tone. Yeah. So. Um, I, there's another thing that's interesting to me, um, it, and and tell me, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but as soon as the Book of Mormon is published, it's almost as if Joseph Smith turns away from it and just doesn't give a shit about <laughs> the Book of Mormon and just moves on. Yeah. Uh, tell his other interests. Um, does that? Well, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know about why, that why, necessarily. Why but I'll say that yeah, he isn't as excited about it maybe as he might have been. I think that um, I think it could be in part one they um, that that especially initially met maybe it. I think that in the course of the composition process of the Book of Mormon, the motives changed a little bit. There might have been more motive initially that that. Okay. Yes. Simultaneously, we're doing this, but we also may well be able to make a living doing this. And so there may have been some disappointment since no one was ever willing to buy a Book of Mormon. You can they're right now they <laughs> <laughs> can get them for free, right? You know, but there's there's not not any money in 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 making them and selling them. And so there's definitely Martin Harris was fairly upset about that. Uh, he Joseph might have been too. Um, so that could be one of the disappointments. Um, then there's also uh, you know, like an initial, there's already now so much more excitement around, you know, find, finding a church and they immediately jump in on their project to um, retranslate the, or to fix the whole Bible, you know, so the Joseph Smith translation happens right away. So I guess I just think that he's, he's like immediately off to other things. Yeah. And, and, and that the Book of Mormon established his authority, you know, so then he was able to take that and, and, and be a, a conduit of God's voice for scriptures that become the, you know, book of commandments, the doctrine and covenants later on book of Abraham, book of Moses, the Joseph Smith translation of the, the Bible. So he keeps doing what he was doing, this kind of pseudepigrapha writing. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, John, that he, he's trying to use the authority of, of God to answer all of these questions and put things in, uh, you know, to, to rest that, that are in contention. So he, he continues to do that, but I think he outgrows the content of the Book of Mormon, but not that process of being a, a, a scripture writer. And, and it's also not entirely gotten rid of or anything like that. It's still a sign of, like you say, of his authority and they do, they republish it. So yeah. they, you know, they republish it twice in his lifetime. So they're they're still going with it. It's just not it's not something that they're maybe that they're spending as much time on as you might like you say you might think. Okay, so I have um, another question for you. Um, uh, you and I, you probably don't even remember it. I don't even remember what message board it was, but um, we 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 talked about some of this stuff. And uh, and one of the comments you said is the Book of Mormon just isn't really that impressive. So. Uh, because you know one of the one of the arguments believers will make is, is you know how could this uneducated boy uh, produce a historical document that is so complex, right? And uh, and of course the the Spalding Rigdon theory in some ways is a response to you know this is a pretty complex five hundred plus page book, even if it's not good literature, which I think it's god awful literature, right? Um, uh, 
Can you flesh out your opinion of why you think the Book of Mormon is just not that impressive? Right. Yeah. So I so I agree. I think that one of the reasons why people continue to be excited about this balding ringgit theory is because people are really bought into the narrative that you know young uneducated Joseph Smith is the person that could not is a person who was supposedly composed this book otherwise and obviously couldn't in, in their view because he um, so um, one there's two halves of that one Joseph Smith was you know not a, you know he's not the 14 year old anymore when he's composing this this is later. Um, you know, so as, as opposed to the first vision, I think we will conflate that. Um, two, he's not as uneducated as all that. Um, he has had, um, a, you know, a regular vernacular education on the frontier where he's, he's literate, he's read the Bible, he's become, you know, like a Methodist exhorter. He's able to uh, do preaching that way. Uh, there's a whole long period of time when he's uh, got, you know, his leg injury. Uh, and at that point when uh, he's, not able to do much other than be being schooled. He's schooled by his brother Hiram, who has been attending um, uh, Moore's Academy, which is the, the academy for poor boys that are, um, it's associated with Dartmouth. So uh, Hiram goes there for a year. He comes back and teaches all that curriculum to Joseph. He's, and anyway, so he is not, and he is a lover of books and, and he's interested in, in learning all of his life. And he has, dozens of books all through his life and he and he's always interested in more schooling and creating schools and things like that in in his later career so um i think the profits yeah yeah exactly so in other words that he the joseph smith actually is not you know um on the one hand joseph smith is not a dummy uh on the other hand the book of mormon as all of the, the the marks of um an early uh or more I don't know, not not a, not a sophisticated writer's composition. So there's uh, big, whole, long parts that are just very, it's just very repetitive and formulaic that are coming that's presumably, again, like I say, in my opinion, um, signs of just being an oral composition as he's preaching the same in this year of the reign of judges, nothing happened, and that year of the reign of judges, nothing <laughs> happened, <laughs> or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the characters, um, I'd say, uh, by and large, are, are, are pretty wooden, uh, we have the same kind of black and white characters and heroic characters. Um, women essentially don't figure into the narrative. Joseph Smith isn't thinking about women anymore. He's got already got a wife, I guess, and not not worried about women right now. <laughs> you know, and uh, and uh, so I would uh, so all of those things. You know, in terms of like people are saying, how could you keep it all in your head? And all, you don't actually have to keep it all in your head with oral composition. They are writing it down every day. You know, they. Um, Every single little section of it that you're reading, now you're reading, you know, the story of King Limhi's people or something like that. All those sections only have so many characters in them, you know, and you're kind of composing what those characters are all doing at that time. Then you get to another part of the narrative and then you're, you know, doing something else. And it's not like the book doesn't actually have lots of errors in it. It does. So. Okay. What do you think, Glenn? Do you think we should, uh, we haven't really talked about Sidney Rigdon very much and and his relationship with Joseph and... I mean, because you know, another argument I hear against the Spalding-Rigdon theory is that why would Rigdon never expose Joseph? Um, I don't think that's a good argument myself because um, if, if Rigdon then comes out after the fact and says, yeah, that was, the Book of Mormon was all a fraud, then he can no longer go forward with any of his other ambitions because he's, you know, he's a known con man. So I don't think it was in his best interest to 
if if he was part of the uh you know it's not a and it's not a huge conspiracy i mean i'm i'm a skeptic and so conspiracy theories like 911 uh require thousands and thousands of individuals doing <laughs> complex i mean this is a conspiracy of the top four people parley pratt sydney rigdon oliver cowdery and joseph smith back in the 1820s and and for after the fact for either Oliver Cowdery or especially Sidney Rigdon, who still had ambitions. I mean, he, to the day he died, he had, he had ambitions. Is that, oh, I, I is think that they both did. What was that? I said, I think they both did. I think Oliver Cowdery still did too. I think he was dying in his diet. He was, he was announcing that he had the keys, not the 12, you know? So, so yeah. So to me, that, that's not a good argument against it. To me, the, the biggest weakness of uh, the Spalding Rigdon theory is um, uh, just the inability to, connect uh, positively, like you said, rigged into um, to Joseph Smith prior to their, was it 1832 meeting in Kirtland or was it earlier than that? Is it earlier? Is it already 31 or I don't know. It's early. Not 31. I mean, it's not, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, does that make sense? My, and, well, I mean, since I, I didn't use that as a, as an excuse, you don't have to debunk it. <laughs> that's one of the things that I, that I hear all the time is yeah. that and glenn has himself has used it on this podcast uh uh you know i you know based on what i read on sydney rigdon there's no way he wouldn't have come out and exposed joseph and i just don't think that that's a very compelling argument i just wanted to throw that in there <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean i think that like you say the main problem is is just that we don't have any w- a way to connect him uh, you know, in, in, before the actual official meeting time, which is a pretty well fleshed out story. So we, you know, the one story we have to get rid of, and then we have to have, like you say, a secret meeting. And it doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually add as much because we have to then have, we've done all of these different things, all the secret stuff we have created, like you say, the conspiracy of four people, which is not a big deal, but it, you're really not buying a lot because so, all you're buying at the end of the day is that, um, that the, um, people in Kanye's affidavits are the most important thing, you know? So we have had to, we have had to, um, uh, by not, by refusing to accept kind of the explanation about what happened with them, we have instead had to create like eight other little things that you have to discount instead, including just the entire, all of the other information we have about the composition process and everything else. So the whole internal evidence of the whole book, everything about it. And the fact actually that Spalding is not a very good writer either, <laughs> based on, <laughs> but a different kind of bad writer in my opinion. So, <laughs> I mean, I think he's a bad, you know, writer, not a, not in an oral sense. He's actually writing, you know, on paper kind of writer and it's a bad novel. But. Bad writing? Bad novel? Are we sure there's no connection here? I want to thank John for taking the time to come on and share his expertise with us. Personally, I find it very compelling, especially the internal themes and motifs that match so closely to the issues of Joseph Smith's day. It also seems to be a simpler explanation of the three, easier to make sense of than the mental gymnastics that personally I would be required uh, if I were to accept the official LDS position or the Rigdon Spalding theory. But hang on, not so fast. We have Craig Criddle coming on to explain this whole Spalding thing in much more detail and to show us how all the pieces fit together. I got to tell you, that was a fascinating discussion and one that you'll get to hear in our next episode. In the meantime, uh, my plea at the end of our last podcast seemed to work. 
sort of. We got one more iTunes review. Uh, this one was on September 25th, uh, submitted by Mr. Zero, who called it pure and delightsome. Yeah, maybe half of that is right. He says, The perfect mixture of thought-provoking discussion and humor. This podcast became an instant favorite, and I'm constantly looking forward to new episodes. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Zero. And all of you can help us create those new episodes, if you want. I just received our first audio essay from Chad. Uh, he called it Confessions of a Mormon Beer Snob, and he did a really good job with it. We'll be featuring that in the next few weeks and bringing Chad on to tell us all about the home brewery he created and how to avoid putting berries in beer and the perfect applications of orange peel, along with how this whole beer snob thing has impacted his relationship with his family and the church. So in the meantime, if you would like to be a part of the podcast, please contact us through Facebook or our website, which is infantsonthrones.com. And while you're there, take a minute to fill out our survey if you haven't already. If we get up to 200 responses, we're going to throw a popcorn party. Thanks again for listening. Anyone for the closing prayer? All right. So what did you think of that discussion, Quad? Do you think that Joseph Smith really wrote the Book of Mormon? Not exactly. Really? Okay, this should be interesting. Explain yourself, Quad. Joseph Smith had his own version of Quad, you know. His own imaginary way of describing the indescribable, of effing the ineffable, and screwing the inscrutable. That was his muse. Moroni, Nephi, Gazellum, he used a lot of names. Joseph Smith pondered the deep mysteries. He wanted to know. He wanted to know so much that he created his own questions and then created his own answers to his own questions. Of course, he pulled from other things he had learned throughout his life from other people, so he borrowed and repurposed as much as he ever created, but that is the human response to the divine that John Hamer spoke of. Because everything is divine, you know. If you just squint your eyes a little and imagine the source energy at the subatomic core of it all, this is the river of revelation. What this pondering of the question in his own mind revealed to that part of him that was searching, all filtered through his complex, rapidly evolving Protestant worldview, a.k.a. his confirmation bias. That's how the Book of Mormon was written. So it sounds like you think that Joseph Smith did write the Book of Mormon? I guess that's a simpler way to say it than the way that I just said it. You think? But it's still not that different from the day you and I first met in the tub. Okay, are we playing that game again? Are we including another chapter of Bathing with God as another extended Easter egg here? You have something pretty impressive there, big guy. Why not share it with as many people as you can? Is that what Moroni said to Joseph? No, it's what Joseph said to himself, right before Fanny Alger and all the others. Any of the other dozen or so subsequent serving girls he magnanimously gave to his wife, Emma. Ouch. Girl, I've known you very well. See you growing every day. I've never been in love before. But now you take my breath away. An angel with a sharpened sword told me that it's time for you and me to throw our cares away. Move closer to that veil of hate. Here in my arms you'll find your paradise. You're on the chance for eternal happiness. If you
Welcome to Bathing with God, the free audiobook podcast from my imagination to yours. I'm Glenn Ostland, and if you like what you hear and would like to purchase a print or Kindle version of the complete book, search for it on Amazon.com or go to the website bathingwithgod.com. And now I give you Bathing with God. Chapter 1 Rub-a-dub-dub, what's that voice in my tub? A.K.A. the Ichiban Kaminari Centrificum Duoleptus. There is a voice inside of you that whispers all day long. I feel this is right for me. I know that this is wrong. No teacher, preacher, parent, friend, or wise man can decide what's right for you. Just listen to the voice that speaks inside. Shel Silverstein Once upon a time, a rather normal, unremarkable man was taking a nice warm bath. He was playing a mindless game on his phone and thinking about nothing in particular, when all of a sudden, he heard a still, small voice coming from deep within his brain, or his heart, or the bathtub, and it spoke to him, and he spoke back. And the conversation that followed went a little something like this. Hello? Hello? Hello, can anybody hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Well, it's about time. I've been waiting here forever. Who are you? I am me. Don't be stupid. Really, who are you? You wouldn't understand. Try me. Okay. I'm the Ichiban Kaminari Centrificum Duoleptus concurrently focused towards octo-quadra-trihedrianta multiplied by a factor of infinite expansion. I don't understand most of those words. That's because I just made most of them up. Terrific. Could you try again with words that aren't made up? All words are made up. They're sounds or images that have been turned into symbols representing things that are already known and familiar to you. I, apparently, am neither known nor familiar to you, or you're not aware of how incredibly known and familiar to you I actually am. So, what symbol should I use for all of that? That feels like a cop-out. Why can't you just tell me what I want to know? I am telling you what you want to know. In fact, that's exactly why I'm here. Here where? This is making no sense. Here inside of you, and outside of you, all around you, really. Let me try to explain it this way. Have you ever looked through a kaleidoscope? Yes. That's sort of what I'm doing. You're like one of the little pieces that is constantly moving and changing your shape, design, size, and color all the time. I see all those changes as they happen. I also see all of the other bits and pieces around you that both influence and are influenced by your ever-changing movement. Unlike a kaleidoscope, however, I do not look in through a single eye hole. I look in and out from every possible angle all at once. And the kaleidoscope that you're inside of is the size of the entire universe. 
which is constantly expanding, by the way, largely because of the new and unique thoughts, actions, and possibilities that you and all other living things create in each and every passing moment. But there's more, because instead of only seeing you, I also smell everything that you smell, taste everything that you taste, feel what you feel, hear what you hear, and much more. Those are the five senses that you're most familiar with, but there are actually hundreds more. An endless number, really. In this great kaleidoscopic universe, there are as many ways to perceive and experience consciousness as there are conscious perceivers to perceive things. And that number is constantly increasing. You don't fully recognize this yet, but imagination is also a sense. And in many ways, it is currently your most important sense, because it acts as a translator between the limits of what you know and everything else. It is the way that you synthesize and create meaning out of all of your other senses. So, I also imagine all that you imagine, think all that you think, and experience everything around you. I also anticipate every potential choice that you could possibly make and consider the infinite number of consequences for anything and everything that you could ever possibly do. The entire cloud of probability for your every action is constantly before me. I am aware of anything and everything you can possibly imagine and so much more. It's sort of what I am. So what? Are you God then? No. I am, however, a part of God, just like you are, just like everything is. Think of it this way. You have 30 trillion cells in your body. Each of them is alive. Each of them is aware of itself and the environment immediately around it in its own particular way. It is a different kind of awareness than you're familiar with because you're so used to the awareness of what comes in through your physical senses. But go look it up. Cells have their own kind of awareness, and each cell communicates with other cells around it. All of that awareness and communication is ultimately what makes your body exactly what it is. But you would not consider any of those individual cells to be you, would you? So, no, I'm not God. But there actually is a God, then? The word God means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What exactly do you mean by God? I thought you think everything that I think and know everything that I know. You're right. I do. I'm asking this for you, not for me. I want to make sure that you know exactly what you mean when you're asking me about God. Fine. By God, I mean a supreme being. A father in heaven, creator of all things kind of God. Someone who created man in his image. Yes, there is something like that. But it's not technically a creator of all things. Because in order for there to be a creator of all things, there must have at one time been nothing. And there has never been nothing. Also, all creative acts are cooperative and collaborative. So there really is never a single creator of anything. And God is not a father in the literal sense, because for that to be true, your idea of gender would have to apply to everything that exists. And that is almost as impossible and absurd as thinking that you could have a father in heaven without a mother in heaven. An unfortunate survival of traditional patriarchal culture, which of course you already know. In fact, 
Nothing that you can actually imagine comes remotely close to what God actually is. The closest I can get is to tell you that God is a highly evolved, formless energy that is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. This energy constantly expresses itself in the form of multiplicity, duality, and contrast, but let's just call all of that duality, since that's closer to what it essentially is. Think of the up quarks and down quarks that are the fundamental building blocks of matter. These bits of subatomic energy essentially act as an organically evolved binary code, the basic programming language for everything that exists. The infinite number of combinations for all of these ever-increasing dualities is what provides all the varieties of existence that you experience, as well as so much more that you do not. And it is the duality itself that chooses its own combinations. The duality is highly evolved life energy. It is omniscient, because it knows how to become all of the things that you see in this world around you and many other things in other worlds that you're not familiar with. It is omnipotent because it has the power to become all of the things that you see in the world around you and many other things in other worlds that you're not familiar with. It is omnipresent because it is all of the things that you see in this world around you and well, you get the idea. I am a result of this duality. You are a result of this duality. I suppose that you could call this duality God, but then you might as well call God everything, and since everything includes everything, it is not distinct from anything, which really shows you nothing, and therefore is not terribly instructive at all. But since you asked, yes, there is a God, and it is aware of you, and is creating every atom in your body, every second of every day. That's a lot to wrap my head around. And that's just scratching the surface. How much more is there? More than you can imagine. Fine, but how close are we? How close is who to what? Science has given us a pretty good understanding of this world that we live in. And someday, it will reveal everything there is to know. So, how close are we? How much do we know compared to how much we do not? There is no possible number for that. Why not? Because existence is infinite. The creations of the divine duality are constantly increasing. Which means that the number of things that you do not know is also constantly increasing. To give you a number, I'd have to create a fraction using the things that you know as a numerator and the things that you don't know as a denominator but I can't pin down an actual number when the denominator is constantly increasing. Come on, can't you at least ballpark it? You want me to ballpark it? Fine. Imagine the smallest possible number. Now, divide that number in half. Then divide that number in half and keep dividing it in half forever. You'll never reach zero, which should give you some degree of satisfaction, because hey, at least it's not zero. But any number that you come up with will still be far too big. So there you go. That's your number. And how exactly do you know all these things? And don't give me any of that Ichiban, Kaminari, made-up words nonsense. Who are you? Let's just keep it simple and call me your imagination. 
my imagination? Yep. I'm having a conversation right now with my own imagination? Pretty much. My imagination is telling me things that I otherwise don't know? You can think of it that way. Ugh, my head is spinning. Yes, like a kaleidoscope. And it smells and tastes delicious. Thank you for listening to Bathing with God. If you like what you just heard and would like to purchase a print or Kindle version of the complete book, search for it on Amazon.com or go to the website bathingwithgod.com. And if you really, really like what you just heard, share it with someone you love and give me a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. You can also like our Facebook page and subscribe to the Bathing with God YouTube channel. And if you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can email me, Glenn Osland, at bathingwithgod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And probably so would Quad. Oh yeah, bring it. Thanks again for listening to Bathing, Bathing with God. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.